You're listening to On the Line, Leadership with Van Crouch. In this podcast, Van asks three questions to his guests in order to discover tools we can apply to our lives that will help us overcome obstacles, aim for excellence, and become our very best. Welcome to this week's episode of On the Line, Leadership with Van Crouch. How many years did you, did you serve at Rama? Uh, Van, I was on staff at Rama for 18 and a half years. Wow. And I had lunch with you one time. Yeah, I uh, remember that. Yoder, I think, is the one that set that up. I think he did. Yeah. And Marvin is out in traveling ministry now. Over the period of time, what would you have to say that the one leadership principle that you took away from there? Wow. I think one of the main principles that I learned from Rama was from the example of the Hagans. And that is, and this sounds basic, but you do whatever it takes to get the job done. They had this gritty resolve. And I think it came from, for example, in Pastor Hagen's early days of ministry, he might be told to put on a suit and go to the hospital to see somebody one minute. And as soon as he gets back, take off the suit, you're going up to repair the roof on the on on top of the building and so it was really just a matter of you do whatever it takes to get the job done and then of course connected to that is not just work hard but work smart find ways to do it that allow you to multiply yourself and get other people involved have other people help with the vision and the burden and the responsibilities and but mainly at the core of it all is just an a grit that yeah stick to itiveness which is actually a word now in the merriam-webster dictionary <laughs> your publishing career started while you were at rama did it not it actually started afterwards i stepped away from rama in 2002 i was dean the last three years and the dean of the school okay and when I stepped away from that position in 2002, my wife and I stepped into full-time traveling. And at that time, I had two books on my heart. Since then, I'm just actually today is the deadline for my 13th book. But my first two books, that I, those are the two that I knew I was going to write. You're probably, um, you're probably best known for the, the book on Timothy. Would, would I be writing it? I think so, yes. And that was the second book I wrote. The first was called Life After Death, Rediscovering Life After the Loss of a Loved One. At, at a church, Rama had 8,000 church members, and people go to heaven. And um, so we worked with a lot of families when they had loved ones pass on and just wrote about how to receive the Holy Spirit's help. He is the comforter. And, and then the second book I wrote, which, as you said, is the one— probably most people know if they know of any of mine, is called In Search of Timothy. And the subtitle is Discovering and Developing Greatness in Church Staff and Volunteers. It's on how to be a good number two person, how to be a good assistant. Yeah, I was going to I was going to pause and ask you a question of the churches you've seen. Where is the assistance position how does it make a difference in the churches you've seen, bad or good? It makes all the difference in the world. It, I think it's something that um, churches, because churches have people and people have human nature, there are certain things that have to continually be 
worked on like a garden. If you're going to have a garden, you're going to yes. constantly deal with weeds. And with human beings, so you're going to constantly deal with attitudes and tendencies toward just self-interest and self-promotion and things like that instead of being a good team member with all your background with sports chaplaincy and things like that. You saw how important it was for team members to pull for the team and not only to pull for themselves in the team. Yeah, the teams yeah. really do the winning. Very much. Not, not the and, individual. And the same principle applies in the kingdom of God. And in the church world, there have to be people who believe and they cooperate with one another, and they're not jealous of each other, competing with each other, undermining each other, but they want to see the whole team win. And so that's what that book is really all about. And I was just at a church in Wisconsin last week where uh, the they, pastor for, for the camp, me, it was actually right before the camp. It was a different church in La Crosse. But when the pastor introduced me to speak, he said, everybody on our staff and key volunteers have to read this book in search of Timothy. It's required yes. reading because they want people on the same page. So they want people to have the same purpose and the same sense of agenda. And you can't have a success uh, a successful team if everybody's going their own separate direction and they all have different goals and different objectives there has to be one common denominator and that is we're gonna we're, we're as a team we're gonna be the best we can be and we're gonna bring out the best in each other and we're gonna help each other how do you recruit a timothy in, in, a, oh, in a church setting yeah even Paul had, Paul said, I only have one person like Timothy. So I don't think they can just be mass produced. When Paul found Timothy, Timothy was serving faithfully in a local church. The Bible says he had a good reputation among the brethren, and it was there in the Galatia area. And so he didn't take somebody who had um, no heart to serve and no interest, and all of a sudden change him. He found somebody that God was already at work in his heart. And what a lot of people don't realize is, I believe there is a calling from God to be a number two person, just as much as there is a calling from God to be a number one leader. Mm -hmm. And the number one leaders always tend to get the most recognition, the Moses, the David, the Paul, but for every one of them, for every Moses, there there needs to be a Joshua. For every David, there's a Jonathan, and even the mighty men of David. And for every Paul, Timothy, a Titus, Silas, a Mark, different ones. And we ultimately have to, God has to touch hearts to begin with. There's a divine part of that. But I think there's also, Van, a human part of it in that we can encourage certain things. We can praise people. And I don't mean in a flattering type of way, but a sincere value mm -hmm. statement yes. where we commend people who are serving behind the scenes. We, we talk about how God values those things. And Jesus did that. He said, he said, the person who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones 
will not lose his or her reward. There's an old phrase in business, I think, that whatever gets praised gets done. And senior leaders can affirm and honor and acknowledge those people who serve in what we call secondary roles and simply talk about the importance of those traits. Just the Bible praises Barnabas for being an encourager. I guess we could say Barnabas was a number one type of leader, but he also seemed to excel in encouraging and helping other people become who they were called to be and affirmed them when nobody else believed in them. Barnabas was a champion of the underdog. And and a lot of people don't even realize that Barnabas was not even his name. His name was Joseph, but they gave him the name Barnabas, which means... Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And so by not only honoring the great, powerful preacher, but also honoring all the people that work together to make the team a success. That helps cultivate when people see value. So many people feel that I'm not a great preacher. I'm not famous. I'm not on television. Therefore, I don't have anything to give. But the fact of the matter is every child of God is called to do something. And we're called to serve one another, help one another. We all have different gifts, talents, skills, and abilities. And it's when everybody pitches in and does their part that the church really becomes effective. So I love the idea of leadership, but we have to marry leadership to followers. Leaders won't get very much done at all if it's not for the work and the help and the contributions of the followers. Speaking of that, of the followers, how would you deal with the number number two guy who, who is in a hurry to move along? Unfortunately, that happens. Sometimes people in a number two position are really ambitious to get to number one. I would say the sooner they move along, the better because they're typically going to cause problems if they're not willing to be patient, if they're not willing to serve, if, if they're just thinking, boy, I can't wait till this number one guy gets out of the way so I can be in charge. That's the root of a lot of insurrections and rebellions and people undermining leader, that type of thing. That's not That does not speak well of their future, that they're in a hurry to get rid of the number one guy so they can be in charge. That's Joshua served Moses for, I want to say for 40 years, but I don't know if he he served in that capacity the whole time. But some number two people in the Bible went on to become a number one person, but some people were a number two person their whole life and their whole ministry. And we have to understand that the number two position is not necessarily and certainly not always a stepping stone for a higher position. No, but the number two can be uh, incredibly valuable, can you not? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You look at how Paul depended on Timothy. He had Timothy going into tough situations. The bottom line is that every leader is limited by just simply being a single person. And um, But when you get people surrounding them who really want to help and who have been trained 
and have their heart and things like that, the leader can be multiplied and the leader's influence can be multiplied by having great helpers and great workers. So yeah, number two people are absolutely indispensable for the health and the productivity. And that applies in the church world, Van, but it also applies in the business world. That's right. You know, and in the secular world, you look at coaches and how important assistant coaches are. And in football, you'll have the head coach, but then you'll have the offensive coach and the defensive coach. And the, and the, and the head coach, most, most, most of what he is doing is organizing. Exactly. And, but if they work together and they each mm -hmm. do their part and each focus, then what happens is the team ends up better, which is what it's all about. My question to you, my probably one of the last questions would be what, with all you've seen and all you've done, what is your 13th book going to be about? The book that I am submitting to the publisher today, and I'm a couple weeks late, but they were gracious, is a sequel to In Search of Timothy. And this book is called In Search of Paul. And it's a book exploring what it is to have a mentor in life. And I'm using the way Paul mentored Timothy. Paul, we have first and second Timothy in the Bible because Paul was coaching Timothy and helping Timothy mature and helping Timothy develop. But then what I'm doing in this particular book is I'm following up throughout church history. How did the great leaders in church history, the Martin Luthers, the Charles Spurgeons, the John Wesleys, how did they coach the young ministers under them? How did they take basically the same themes that Paul used? I'm identifying eight major themes that Paul trained and developed Timothy in. And then I'm taking how did all these other great leaders basically teach their young protégés the same types of principles. We need spiritual fathers who will pour life into the young ministers, but we also need young ministers that are humble enough to listen and to be trained and to recognize. I'll give you an example, Van. I, I played uh, tennis for Butler University way back in yeah. the day, back in the late 70s, and I was an average tennis player. I wasn't great, but I remember when I first played when I first began playing, probably around freshman, sophomore in high school, my dad said, Tony, you've got good athletic ability, but you need some lessons. And he knew an older gentleman in town that taught tennis lessons. So my dad arranged, I had one tennis lesson. And my dad said, how'd you like that? I said, I'm good. I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to play. And I didn't think I needed any more lessons than that. Fortunately, I got on a team where they required you to have constant coaching and all that. But I was so young and dumb. I just thought, well, I just need one lesson. I, I've had that one lesson. Now I'm ready to go. Really, all through life, Van, we need coaching. We the, the tennis professionals, the Roger Federer's and the Novak Djokovic, and all, they have coaches that continue to work with them, even though they're the best players in the world. I don't think we ever outgrow the need for some coaching. Who would you, who, in, in publishing, who would you consider somebody that's made an uh, uh, impact in your life as a coach? Wow, oh, that's a good question. I grew up in Indiana playing basketball 
And all of my coaches in basketball, they were what we call old school. And you dive into the bleachers for a loose ball if you have yes. to. They taught and rugged like, like, like Hoosiers. Yeah, yeah, very much. And and that was filmed. The, the state finals in Hoosiers was filmed at Butler University where I went to college. I didn't um, know that. Yep. That, they called it Butler Fieldhouse in Hoosiers. And today it's called Hinkle Fieldhouse after one of their classic coaches. But but yeah, I'm so thankful, Van, that I played a whole bunch of sports growing up because I think it helped me to learn how to be a better team player. I was never an outstanding player. I was always more like coming off the bench and things like that. So I wasn't trying to be the superstar because I just didn't have that ability, but I, I always understood, or at least I came to understand, if I can make my team better, then that's a success. Where does your speaking schedule take you this year? We used to do a whole bunch of overseas. Matter of fact, the year before coronavirus, my wife and I were out of the country for 93 days. Wow. Uh, that all shut down with coronavirus. I do a lot of Zoom meetings, internet meetings overseas. But for example, this coming weekend, I'm trying to think where I fly up to New Jersey and preach in a church. And then I go meet with a bunch of pastors up in uh, Connecticut. And I've got things coming up in California, really all over the country. And one thing, Van, I'm really blessed with because I worked at Rama so long. I got to know a lot of pastors and people who were in the process of becoming pastors, students who were training and that type of thing. That's one of the great uh, blessings that we're really thankful for. We look forward to the day that you come to new life here in Warsaw, Indiana. And we thank you for, uh, for everything that you're doing to impact the body of Christ today. Van, thank you. And I appreciate you and appreciate all the you've helped countless people over the years. And I sure appreciate you. I remember speaking to the Rama basketball team and they could sure play back in, back in the day. They loved it. And we loved having that team for sure. They, they brought a spark to it. Thank you very much for visiting with us today and, and uh, for all that you're doing to get the uh, body of Christ flying and the example you've been to us over the years. Hey, Van, thank you so much. And I hope this summer you get to enjoy some good Indiana sweet corn. Thank you very much. We, we look forward to doing that. Okay. Thank you, Van. God bless. God bless. This has been On the Line Leadership with Van Crouch. I look forward to our next phone call and podcast as we discover tools we can apply to our lives that will help us overcome obstacles, aim for excellence, and become our very best. I'll see you on the next episode.